Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I, as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes a newsletter, a weekly newsletter as well, called Trader Tracks and Chen Lin who publishes What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling. And we do have a special introductory offers for all three of those letters. If you call my assistant in New York, in New York Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com to follow, uh, to learn more about those publications. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I would also remind you that I have a website called jtaylormedia.com, that's J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R, media.com, where you can access everything I do, including this radio show. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter under the handle JTaylorMedia. That's J-A-Y-Taylor-Media. That's my uh, handle uh, under Twitter. But I do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are American Manganese, Airway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Gold Rich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. <clears throat> Once again, uh, as always, almost always, I would say always, we have some very, very interesting guests with us today. Gene Epstein will be returning. Uh, he writes the Economic Beat column for Barron's. Uh, he will here, be here to talk about the uh, economic repercussions of the health care bill, as well as uh, he'll talk about a couple of uh, speaking engagements that he's going to be, uh, where he'll be attending. One is the New York City Junto. That's a monthly event that will be held in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, that's held uh, the first, I believe, the first Thursday of every month. It's one that I started going to recently. Really enjoy a lot of excellent speakers. It's free of charge, and Gene will talk about that. He will also be a speaker at the Freedom Fest in Las Vegas. Uh, and so Gene uh, 
Epstein will be along to talk about those about those items. In the second hour of today's show, we're going to be talking to Arch Crawford again. He'll return to talk about the Mars-Uranus crash cycle and why he is not only shorting the market but leveraging his short position uh, starting uh, during the third week of this month. Now, you can laugh and scoff at this notion of astrology as being a useful tool, but Arch Crawford has used it, along with technical analysis, to post one of the best timing records on Wall Street, and according to uh, that being according to the Halbert Digest. While it is most certainly true that we don't understand the complexity of the effects of the heavenly bodies on Earth, Arch notes that the correlation between different formations that, that occur from time to time uh, and the things that do occur on Earth are just too strong to ignore. So if you would like to have an edge in the markets and uh, whether know whether you should be long or short the equity markets, well, you might want to pay some attention at least to what Arch has to say. He'll be here at about 4.30 today. We have two main guests this week. Uh, at approximately 3.30, University of Chicago professor Luigi Zingales. Uh, he's the author of a book titled A Capitalism for the People. He will join us uh, to talk about why he left his native Italy to seek a better life in the United States. But he'll also talk about some of his concerns about the direction of things in, in the United States. He feels very strongly that we're moving back towards, uh, well, back towards the way things were uh, and are in Europe and in Italy and the very things that he sought to escape. So uh, he will be uh, with us to talk about crony capitalism. That's what he believes is starting to occur here or as Gene Epstein uh, has labeled it, crapitalism. That's crapitalism instead of crony capitalism. At approximately 4 o'clock, uh, James Turk will return uh, to this show. He's been with us on a couple of occasions before. He'll be here to talk about, uh, certainly to talk about the gold markets, the precious metals markets. He'll also uh, talk about, uh, I'm sure we can get him to talk about his wonderful company called goldmoney.com, which is, in my view, one of the best ways to buy and hold and own gold and other precious metals. I want to also ask James for his views uh, in the markets and also whether he still holds on to the view of hyperinflation, which I believe he does. In fact, he had a discussion with Robert Prechter recently on his website at goldmoney.com that you might want to listen to. I think both of those uh, gentlemen uh, really have different views both are very, very uh, bright, intelligent people who have studied the markets for a long time. Uh, very interesting discussion between uh, James Turk and Robert Prechter. Well, I'm going to ask James uh, to perhaps talk a little bit about the discussion he had with Robert Prechter and a whole host of other things to talk to James Turk about. So we do have a very interesting show coming up today, but before we uh, get to Gene Epstein after the first commercial break. I'd like to talk a bit about my own views regarding the markets and how I am suggesting to my subscribers they might want to uh, arrange their portfolios at this point in time. First, I do believe that the global markets are slowing down and that the equity markets will remain challenged in the weeks and months to come. Uh, I do tend to side with Robert Prechter's view as opposed to James Turk's view on this whole issue of inflation deflation for a host of reasons. Uh, and uh, actually, um, though with respect to gold, I think that uh, the deflationary environment is every bit as bullish and promising as a hyperinflationary environment. As a matter of fact, what I would say is that with respect to gold mining companies, the deflationary environment is much more bullish for gold mining than, a, uh, than an inflationary environment because uh, it's all about margins. It's all about profits. I mean, that's what you get into the gold mining industry 
to do is to make a profit, and if it costs you more uh, to get it out of the ground than the uh, than the gold is worth, then it's uh, then it's not a profitable endeavor. Well, we've seen throughout history that during these major credit deflations, uh, we we have uh, the real price of gold rising. That is what an ounce of gold will buy rises very dramatically. And interestingly enough, when I had Robert Prechter on this show going back uh, oh, a year, more than a year ago now, I guess, uh, Robert uh, actually agreed with me in terms of the real price of gold in a deflationary environment, though he did believe that the price of uh, that the dollar would be stronger than gold. He believed that gold would go down relative to the dollar. It certainly is a contrary view to what James Turk has. I'm going to, again, talk to James Turk today about, about that. Um, so uh, with respect to the real price of gold, uh, I just took a look at it a few minutes ago before coming on the show, and it was at 45.8%. That is, an ounce of gold would purchase 48, 45.8% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. Now, to put that in context, before the Lehman Brothers credit uh, implosion episode got underway, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. So we've seen a dramatic increase in the purchasing power of gold relative to a whole basket of other commodities. And again, as I say, that has been very important for gold mining companies. The gold mining companies' profits are booming. They're doing extremely well. Now, the gold mining shares have not performed well. The uh, PE multiples have been compressed, and uh, I believe there's a host of reasons. Well, actually, I think the ETFs uh, certainly is one of the reasons people can go uh, buy an ETF much easier than researching and buying a gold mining company. They buy an ETF and get their exposure to gold that way. Dennis Gartman is always recommending that people do that. But I think there's also this whole uh, issue of uh, of tight credit, and, and uh, um, I think we really have a lot of difficulty uh, with uh, not only with liquidity but with solvency. I think the whole world is, in, is really... Uh, involved in a uh, in a solvency crisis actually because debt has risen so much more dramatically over the last few decades than income has risen and uh, and from a macro point of view I believe that we have a major problem is called an insolvency problem and with that comes a liquidity problem at least that's the way I see it and that's why I think the uh, ratios uh, the PE ratios are being compressed it's not only in the ind- in the gold mining industry but some other industries too Microsoft for example uh, has had a compression of its PE uh, ratios over recent years. So I think it's uh, the equity markets, no doubt, are all uh, under some pressure because of that. And, uh, well, we are going to talk to Gene Epstein in a few minutes and get his view uh, on the equity markets. I think Gene is somewhat more uh, bullish than I am on the equity markets, but we want to hear what he has to say about that as well um, and um, uh, hear what he has to say. Of course, we do want to talk to Gene about this health care bill. We'll be talking to him about that. Um, and... Um, we want to look also at uh, one of the things I want to do on this show in the next uh, number of weeks uh, is to drill down a little bit more on some of the mining companies that I'm following in my newsletter. And not only the mining companies, but we're looking at some oil and gas companies as well. But um, for, just to give you an idea of a couple of the companies that I added to my list last week, Eurostar Gold Corp uh, trades uh, on the Toronto Exchange under URS and in the United States under URNRF. Uh, sold at 20 cents last week. Uh, This is a company that has some excellent exploration targets in Mexico, a very promising exploration uh, team, a good geologist working there with some uh, very well-funded people standing behind that behind that company. And uh, it is a high speculation uh, shot, no doubt about it. 
but it is one I think that has a good chance uh, to succeed uh, with its geological, uh, with its exploration efforts. Uh, Esperanza Resource Corp. at a dollar six is a company that I that is much further along and has had some economic studies. Uh, has a very robust project in uh, in Mexico as well. I also recommended uh, adding two oil and gas companies this week. One was Airway Energy, which is a sponsor to this company, and I'll have Chris Cooper come on the show next week to talk about Airway. And we also uh, talked about Pan Orient Energy, which is Chen Lin's second most favorite stock. By the way, his most favorite stock, Mart, uh, which is now uh, trading up at about a dollar forty-five, did announce a twenty-cent one-time dividend. Uh, this week, and it, then it's uh, going to also be providing a, uh, a five-cent quarterly dividend, giving it a yield of something like 13.8%, uh, a company that's growing very rapidly with uh, very substantial oil production in Nigeria, and if they're able to get their pipeline expansion um, with uh, Shell Oil, I think we're going to see very dramatic increases in the earnings of this company. Very cash-rich company, of course. It is Nigeria, which is uh, a fly on the ointment and probably has scared a lot of people away from the uh, from from that stock. Well, we do have to go to a break now, and when we come back, we're going to be talking to Gene Epstein. Um, Gene will uh, have a lot of very interesting things to say, I'm sure, about this market and uh, the uh, Obama health care bill. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Gene Epstein. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. 
Prodigy Gold is transitioning from Gold Explorer to Mine Developer. We are well-funded, located in stable eastern Canada. The Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year, strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www prodigygold.com and read more prodigy gold today's discovery tomorrow's future voice america business network the bottom line in business you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again this week, Gene Epstein. He's uh, an economist and a columnist for Barron's, uh, as well as uh, he has a host of responsibilities there. Uh, he also reviews uh, books for Barron's, and uh, he writes uh, a column that I'm most familiar with in Barron's. is called The Economic Beat, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to ask Gene about uh, some, of his, some of his views there on the Obama health care bill. Uh, as far as Gene's bio goes, uh, beyond what I just told you, you can read a more complete bio by going to the website at uh, Voice America and looking up uh, under his name. Welcome, Gene. It's good to have you back. Well, always good to talk to you. Thank you for coming on. And uh, you're, uh, I want to talk to you about your article in Barron's mm-hmm. last week. But mm-hmm. before we get to that, uh, you are now involved very much with a group uh, called the New Yorker, with an event, a monthly event called the New York Junto. Mm-hmm. Uh, meetings in New York. Tell our listeners about New York Junto. Uh, what is uh, what is it? What is it about? Well, and- it's, it's hosted and completely paid for by a great uh, guy, a hedge fund ex hedge fund manager and a trader named Vic Niederhofer, and he's allowed me to sort of take charge of it. It meets uh, uh, pretty much on the first Thursday of each month. Uh, the next meeting is in two days, uh, this uh, Thursday evening, uh, July 5th. We host speakers uh, every month that, uh, that are going to go on at 8 o'clock sharp, but the first half hour from 7.30 to 8, people can walk in and meet and make public announcements of any sort that they want or anything that's on their mind. That goes on for a half hour, then the speaker goes on for about 45 minutes, and then we have a very freewheeling discussion lasting at least an, at least an hour. You can meet a lot of people, and uh, I think you can also uh, get a lot of uh, good insights uh, from everything that everyone says. It's open to the public. It's free. It's on 44th Street, right near 5th Avenue, and uh, I hope uh, if you look, look it up under Junto, you can get the exact address. This time we're having Tyler Cowan, who's a, uh, a economist from George Mason, published a lot of books. He's going to be speaking on uh, the path out of the great stagnation. He believes uh, that the economy is stagnating. Certainly it's been stagnating over the last few years, and uh, he's going to tell us about the path out. So mm-hmm. looking forward to that. 
Uh, Gene, it is a, a free market orientated group, I believe, or an objectivist group. Is that right? Yes. Uh, well, you know, uh, I I'm not worthy of being called an objectivist, so I'm glad you also called it a free market group. Uh, yeah, that's uh, definitely its orientation. On the other hand, uh, you know, Stalinists, social democrats, anybody is, mm-hmm. is invited to participate and mm-hmm. uh, to. Uh, take some of our attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it tends to attract, obviously, people who are free market oriented, mm-hmm. as is me, as am I, and of course, as is Tyler Cowan, and that's, of course, uh, most of the speakers we host, because uh, that uh, remedies the imbalance of so many other venues around New York City uh, do not host such people. Well, that's, uh, that really is a breath of fresh air, for sure, from, uh, from my perspective as well, mm-hmm. but it's also interesting, and I think uh, invigorating that you allow uh, dissenting views and people to come in and, and voice opinions. That's the way we can all learn is to be able to talk to each other and, uh, and express those views. And uh, mm-hmm. I've I've only attended two of them now, Gene, but I've enjoyed mm-hmm. both of them thoroughly and uh, met you there and also, mm-hmm. uh, you know, another another great uh, speaker the the month before. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to it. You also are going to be speaking uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, that is um, that is at an event called. Um, Called Freedom Fest. The Freedom uh, Fest, uh, right. Freedom Fest uh, is a an annual event. Takes place at the Bally Hotel in Las Vegas uh, every July. This time it's going to start uh, Thursday morning, uh, July 10th. Uh, that's a week from this Thursday. Goes on for four days. It's a whole smorgasbord of, smorgasbord of, of, of speaking and uh, debates and other events and a lot of opportunity to meet hundreds of like-minded people and to uh, taste a little bit of Las Vegas. Uh, I'm going to be speaking, uh, participating in four events, uh, two that might interest uh, you listeners most are my lecture, which I delivered at Junto already, but I'm going to do an updated version of uh, the real causes of uh, the Great Recession, the failure of capitalism, as I've called it, uh, that caused the Great Recession. Uh, that's crony capitalism. And then I'm also actually going to look for, looking forward to having a debate with Charles Murray, uh, the author of Losing Ground, and most uh, recently of a book that I'm going to be debating with him on the grounds of whether he's libertarian enough. And uh, Charles, uh, I think, uh, will be a great person to interact with, Charles Murray, who's pretty well known. Yeah, interesting. Well, I, I sure wish I were going. I won't make it this year, but maybe next year, because it is an annual event in Las Vegas. I believe it's been going on for quite a few years. I, I believe that Ron Paul's been a speaker there in the past. Do you happen to know if he'll be there this year? Um, I think Rand Paul is coming. As a matter of fact, last couple of years, generally speaking, his son Rand, mm-hmm. uh, who's got the mantle from Ron, uh, mm-hmm. uh, comes, uh, and I'm almost positive he's going to be one of the keynote speakers this mm-hmm. year. Yeah. Well, if uh, if you want to ask whether he's libertarian enough, uh, I guess that is some question that some people are asking of Rand Paul. And uh, now that he has uh, endorsed uh, Mitt Romney, but uh, <clears throat> I, I remember I had a an interesting discussion because I was at the swearing-in uh, ceremonies uh, the last congressional session when it started, and uh, I met up with Rand, and I said, you know, your legacy will be whether you can be as pure as your father. Yeah. And then when I told Ron that, Ron just sort of laughed and he says, I'll bet he didn't want to hear that. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> in any event, uh, you know, Rand has to be his own person, obviously, yeah. he, he, you yeah. know, and I'm sure. Yeah, and you've got to, you know, you've got to make compromises. And uh, But uh, I think that at Freedom Fest, he'll, uh, he'll breathe the free air of freedom. And uh, I guess everybody's going to uh, ostracize him a little bit for what he's recently done. But he'll be welcome and uh, well, interesting to listen to. Yeah, I guess there's two trains of thought there. You can uh, You can try to dialogue with people and try to convince and, and educate or you can just 
butt heads and uh, yeah. I, I don't know. There's, a, I guess, a, a case to be made either way. Well, I'd like to ask you uh, to comment a little bit on your article last week in Barron's. Uh, folks, you can read every every week, I believe, Gene, you, you write the economic beat in the yes. Barron's. Is that right? Almost every week uh, my column appears, yes. Certainly I'll have a column in uh, this week. A lot's been happening in the markets. Uh, last week, uh, however, I did uh, a little uh, reflection on the way in which Obamacare is going to be gamed. I, I began by writing, let, let the games begin, the gaming of, of the system of Obamacare. And I pointed out just from an economist standpoint uh, how odd uh, the setup is, uh, just for starters, is the reason why the mandate uh, exists, why people have to buy into the system, uh, when, you, when you think that, my God, maybe they would want to voluntarily buy health care, is because the young are being asked to subsidize the old. It's the young people who have, whose arms have to be twisted, who mm-hmm. have to be forced to buy in uh, because they're going to overpay for the health insurance uh, in the Obamacare, uh, but uh, and they're going to be subsidizing the older people. So how do you twist the arms of these people? Well, uh, you uh, you're going to be uh, running into difficulties if you tell them, as Obamacare will be telling them, that there are no pre-existing conditions with respect to getting the health insurance anyway. That is, it doesn't matter if you have the health insurance if you come down with uh, a a health or medical problem that requires insurance, you uh, you'll be you can just buy in uh, mm-hmm. the next morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be treated as though you've had the health insurance right. all along. Right. So if that's the case. What's your motivation to buy in to begin with? Right. Well, not very much. No. It, it, just for starters. Well, you would. They, those seem like such obvious issues, Gene. Why uh, why were they ignored? Well, you know, they're, they're ignored because it's so difficult to square the circle, I, uh, meaning then that, 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 that the idea of pre-existing conditions, that anybody should be rejected for health care or have any kind of issue uh, if, uh, if he does have a pre-existing condition, is something that's absolutely anathema uh, to those who've passed Obamacare. Uh, now, I hasten to say, however, uh, that uh, given uh, the philosophy, given the attitude, there's no question that a good alternative would be to have health insurance for everyone, uh, but health insurance that is affordable, and the only way to do that is to, is to liberate the supply side. Liberate the supply side in the sense that you allow consumers to, to shop around, mm-hmm. you make them price sensitive because the system is charging prices that are meaningful, uh, and in addition, you liberate all the restrictions on selling health insurance across state lines, you limit all... You, you eliminate all the mandates that Obama, when he was at Ill in, in, in the Illinois legislature, voted for that require your health insurance, for example, to include a yoga, in, yoga instructor. You allow people to buy the kind of health insurance they want. You limit the restrictions on nurses and other uh, practitioners who are not doctors mm-hmm. practicing certain things that, uh, that, that they can do very effectively. Uh, you turn it into a market on the supply side, and then uh, you might want to subsidize the demand side, but the demand side then can be subsidized and aided in ways that make it an efficient system. And that's not the direction in which Obamacare has been marching. That's the fundamental problem.
Mm-hmm. More uh, more competition, uh, more freedom to to choose in the markets. Obviously, uh, well, I mean, you have again a, an appalling fact that basically, if you're in New York, you can only buy health insurance in New York. Mm-hmm. Now, the health insurers in New York might like the, the monopoly, but sure. the idea that you can't buy health, you can buy food across state lines, you can buy automobiles across state lines, you can't buy health insurance across state lines. Uh, you you can't buy the health insurance plan that's suitable for you. It's filled with mandates. Mm-hmm. Man- Mandates that require you to buy a health insurance plan that may not be suitable for you. Uh, you have all kinds of distortions. You have a whole philosophy of healthcare that says that while we w- we wouldn't think of buying insurance to give our car a thousand mile checkup, we think that we need insurance for that sort of thing. Insurance would be much more limited in a free market. We would buy insurance for the things that really we really need to insure ourselves against, not against so many things that we really don't need in health insurance for. So it be a vastly different market and it's very important I think for people to read books like for example the new book by John C. Goodman called Priceless Curing the Healthcare Crisis uh, which I do recommend uh, in the uh, final couple of paragraphs of uh, my column of last week. Mm-hmm. Excellent and uh, yeah. I do uh, I did want to ask you also I think yeah. there is supposed to be a justice I think Roberts uh, declared that essentially uh, this fine that people are going to be fined if they don't join the Healthcare system yeah. is that right? And uh, yes. and that that uh, he deemed that to be a tax. So we've got a, ta- yes. a new a new tax uh, that we're going to be paying. In essence, if we don't, uh, we have to join the system, or else we're going to be taxed, right? Or else we're going to be taxed. But of course, the oddity of the system is that uh, young people, uh, who are the ones whose arms have to be twisted to join the system, because the system is not charging them a fair price. Young people are going to be told uh, you'll pay a penalty uh, that will start at a couple hundred dollars and rise to about six hundred ninety-five dollars by 2016, or you'll buy health insurance for five thousand dollars, or uh, at least uh, something of that uh, uh, in that ballpark. Now, who would? Buy Buy health insurance for five thousand dollars when you know you can get it anyway, with no because there are no pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. need it, you'll yeah. rather pay the penalty of six hundred ninety-five dollars just for starters. And then the question is, young people being occasionally somewhat lawless, uh, and uh, or even some older people, the IRS is going to hire uh, uh, more than ten thousand people to enforce this system to force them to pay this penalty slash tax. But on the other hand, the IRS is not, as the statute is currently written, written, have the power to put liens and levies on you in order to get you to pay the tax. So that's their first problem. They'll have other problems with respect to even collecting the penalty in the first place. It's amazing. Of course, obviously, politicians who barely know Economics 101 have dreamt up this system, yeah. but they can't repeal the laws of economics, and the laws of economics are going are to put havoc into the way the system uh, works. It's yeah. going to create a lot of tax felons. That's almost certain. Well, it sounds to me like uh, crony capitalism has, or crony capitalism, or capitalism <laughs> as you call it, has made its way into the medical system as well yeah. if we're not yeah. allowed to compete, if we can't yeah. buy our insurance uh, from outside of the uh, state. So, yes. Uh, well, the the uh, the laws of unintended consequences, uh, and as you say, economics will prevail. We do have to go to a break now, Gene. I want to thank you so much for uh, for being with us uh, this sure. week, and we look forward to talking to you again very soon. And I uh, hope personally to catch up with you on Thursday at New York City Junto. 
terrific. See you then. Thanks. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back uh, with Professor uh, Zingales. He's going to be with us uh, to talk about crony capitalism or what Gene Epstein calls crony or what Gene Epstein calls capitalism. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Professor Zingales. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Naranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. Prodigy Gold is transitioning from gold explorer to mine developer. We are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year, strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway, and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.com. ProdigyGold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold. Today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today University of Chicago Professor Luigi Zingales. Dr. Zingales is the Robert C. McCormick Professor of Entrepreneurship 
and Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. He is a faculty research fellow for the National Bureau of Economic Research, a research fellow for the Center for Economic Policy Research, and a fellow for the European Governance Institute. He is the lead independent director of Telcom Italia and the vice president of the American Finance Association. He is the co-author of Saving Capitalism from the Capitalist and a contributing editor of uh, City Journal. His latest book, A Capitalism for the People, Recapturing the Lost Genius of American Prosperity, uh, is what we want to talk to him today about. Uh, Professor Zingales lives in Chicago with his wife and children. Welcome, Dr. Zingales, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you for having me. Really great to have you. Um, we, we, we really, it seems to me, uh, in America, have lost our, uh, our compass in terms of what capitalism is all about, the freedom of the individual, the individual to, uh, to participate on an even playing field, to have an equal chance. Uh, our founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence uh, said that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable um, uh, rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness. And, of course, they weren't saying that each and every individual was equal and they were entitled to an equal lifestyle and equal income and equal this and equal that. They were saying that each person had the equal right under the law to compete and participate uh, in, a free, in a free market society. Um, that is, I think, in part what you came to this country for. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. It's not just in part. This is what I came to this country for. Mm-hmm. You, so what, what was it like? Uh, I mean, your book is, is an excellent book. And again, I tell our listeners, a, capitalist, uh, a capitalism for the people, recapturing the lost genius of American prosperity. And in your book, you talk about the, uh, the hoops that you, that you have to jump through or the things you have to do to get ahead in the Italian, in the Italian system. Uh, it, it has more to do with just doing favors for people or doing good things for people that are in power and trying to sort of kiss up to them to get privileged positions. And you were trying to make it in Italy. You wanted to make it. You wanted to, to make it in the university system there. What does one have to do in the university in Italy to, to, to make it to the top? There is an expression uh, that doesn't translate so well in English, but it's called carrying the bag, which is basically being uh, a personal slave for the professor uh, so that you sort of uh, gain some favor and the professor will sort of uh, compensate you with the position down the line. Uh, this is completely the opposite of uh, what academia here is here in the United States, where sort of... Uh, uh, young assistant professors make their career by being aggressive and criticizing what all professors have done. Mm-hmm. So you came to the United States. I'm going to talk to us a little bit about your experience back there, though. You you did try to make it in the university system there, and and what happened, as you explain in your book? Oh, I basically was uh, not getting any any help there because uh, I wanted to stand out by my opinion. I didn't like to kiss up and uh, my attitude of uh, criticizing uh, what people say if I don't think is right was considered disruptive and uh, uh, not really welcome. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, you, so you came to the United States and uh, I know you received your, your PhD from MIT and it's very difficult to rise much above that academically. You were a good student 
uh, you were an excellent student in Italy, as I understand it, but that didn't matter too much, I guess. Yeah, no, it didn't uh, automatically give you a, a, a advantage. And, and not only I sort of uh, came here, I did my PhD here. At the end of it, I tried to go back to Italy, and uh, uh, it was not even funny. They were not offering me any decent position. I couldn't support my family. I just had a baby when uh, uh, I got my PhD. I could not have supported my my family. Uh, and here in the United States, they offered me a, a nice job where uh, well paid and with great opportunity to do research. So uh, my career here has been tremendously better and I achieved sort of a full uh, uh, tenure position within sort of uh, seven years from when I graduated at an age where in Italy, you can't even consider to to be uh, part of a competition for becoming full professor. So I think that uh, uh, the system of reward is completely different, and uh, here is really based on merit. There is much more based on sort of connection, whether political or family connections. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's hard for me to imagine as an American uh, there aren't too many more prestigious PhDs than one from MIT, and that that wouldn't carry some weight back in Italy to me. Um, well, and I wouldn't uh, imagine I would imagine that it's somewhat like that in the other European countries as well. Yeah, I sp- especially I, w- I have to say Southern Europe. I think mm-hmm. that uh, Northern Europe, Germany and Sweden, etc., and England are definitely better in this dimension. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but that notwithstanding, um, it's better here and all that, but there's some things that really started causing you to have some concerns about the direction of things in America as well. You noted in your book, I think, after, uh, uh, post, uh, after, after, um, 2008, the, uh, the Lehman Brothers, uh, failure, uh, you started to notice some things that, that gave you some concern. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I have to say, uh, from a personal point of view, this country gave me more than I hoped for. So I'm not complaining. Sure. Uh, But I'm just worried that it will not offer the same chances to other people, uh, to my children and Mm -hmm. other people who are coming to this country. Mm -hmm. And uh, the source of concern is, is first, uh, when it comes to sort of uh, uh, dealing with the financial crisis, I, I am among those who think that the government should have been done should have done something to fix the problem, but uh, uh, not the TARP and not the way sort of uh, the banks were rescued at the expense, uh, taxpayers' expenses. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I consider this not only sort of uh, very bad from an economic point of view, it's also bad for a, uh, from a moral point of view. I think that uh, uh, the free market system, capitalism, is supported by the idea that you get very large reward if you succeed, but you sort of pay the cost if you fail. Sure. If you take away uh, the cost when you fail, you really deprive the system of the moral high ground to get the reward when you succeed. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, uh, that's, that's the first problem I saw. The second problem I saw is that uh, uh, it disaffection. Uh, one thing that uh, uh, impressed me of American when I came is how much uh, the ordinary citizens believe in what the government was doing and believe in the system. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the 2008 crisis, I saw that uh, this uh, belief, this trust disappeared. And uh, I ran uh, a, a sort of survey 
And uh, in this survey, uh, we asked in 2008, at the end of 2008, whether uh, the average American thought that, for example, uh, Hank Paulson acted uh, in the interest of the country or in the interest of Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. And 50% of the people who responded said in the interest of Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's really a, a war in sign because regardless of the, whether this is true or not, what matters in politics are perception. Yeah. And if the perception of the average American is that... Uh, uh, the government is acting in the interest of uh, uh, few corporations, uh, then people don't want to participate in the game, and they try to uh, change the rules, uh, and everybody tries to change the rule in their own favor, and that's the end of uh, a fair market system, and it's the beginning of uh, uh, lobbying and cronyism. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly... Um there, it's easy to see why Occupy Wall Street, why the Tea Party became enraged, and why those organizations sort of took root after that. Um, because the bankers, maybe they received a little less than their bonuses for a year or two, but they still are living pretty darn well. I can remember the time I worked at ING Bearings, and uh, before that, NMB, a Dutch bank in New York. And I remember uh, Ross Perot running for office in the United States, and I remember the NAFTA discussions, and Mr. Perot was warning about Americans uh, seeing jobs leave uh, the United States and going other uh, elsewhere. And, you know, uh, in the bank that I worked at, you that was not a view that you were allowed to even consider. You had to take either the Republican view or the Democratic view. And then I started to understand why ING, at that time NNB and Citicorp, were making loans to Mexico, big, fat interest rate loans, and they knew very well that if and when that failed, they would get bailed out, and certainly that's what that's what happened. So that was, you know, that's going back quite a ways. It seems to me that uh, you and your book started mentioning, uh, or you mentioned that you started becoming, uh, well, some of the major turns of events might have been the long-term capital management uh, bailout. Uh, would you care to comment on that? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that uh, by today's standard, that was a very mild bailout. And it's mm-hmm. Just to remind the listener, uh, this was a hedge fund that was uh, very highly levered, and uh, during a small market downturn in uh, the fall of uh, 1998, uh, was about to go bankrupt. And actually, uh, Warren Buffett uh, had made an offer to buy out the fund at a very low price, uh, and the Federal Reserve intervened, just uh, not with money, but just with moral suasion, put everybody around the room and said, uh, we want you to buy them out at uh, a higher price. And so the various investment banks did it. And uh, that was uh, sort of a, a pretty big indication that uh, – uh, the the Fed will not let sort of uh, the marketplace walk uh, mm-hmm. its way. And then if you are a large enough institution, regardless of whether you've made mistakes or not, you are help out. And uh, it didn't help that uh, one of the partners of LTCM was a former governor of the Fed. It did give an impression of cronyism. Uh, I'm sure that uh, this played no role, but again, perception are quite important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, long-term capital management was deemed too big to fail, I believe, as I recall. Exactly, and, and, and then sort of uh, 
what in the book I, I mention is, is sort of a recent experiment suggests that uh, what keeps people in, in, uh, in check is fear, and fear is located in sort of a, one particular organ of the brain, a part of the brain called amygdala. And uh, the LTCM bailout is tantamount to a removal of the amygdala in mm. the brain of traders. They said there is sort of no fear because we are too big to fail, and there is nothing we have to fear. And yeah. that is what created a lot of the disruption that followed. Yeah, and maybe a lot of the problems that we had that followed then, if we hadn't done it, if we hadn't bailed out long-term capital, may not have occurred. Absolutely. Yeah. You also mention in your book George Bush uh, and his departure from Ronald Reagan's free market philosophy, uh, one towards protectionism. You, felt, you feel that that was another, another move in the wrong direction? Yeah, I think that uh, what I like and, uh, of, of Ronald Reagan is that he really interpreted a, a free market uh, for the people and not just for a small elite. Uh, this is uh, maybe also where he came from, but I think what he represented, and that's the reason why a lot of Democrats voted for him, because they saw that he was trying to defend the interests of the people at large and not just the interests of few institutions. Mm-hmm. And uh, the impression that uh, the Bush administration left is that this was not the case. And uh, even when uh, they intervene in small, quote-unquote, popular measure, like, for example, the free um, drug for Medicare Act, uh, they sort of uh, did it in a way that really favored the large pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. It was not... Uh, that uh, they had the retiree in mind, they had the large pharmaceutical companies in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, we were just talking to Gene Epstein of, of Barron's, uh, who, an economist that writes the economic beat there, and he, he was talking about some of the economic issues that he, he uh, feels uh, are, are possibly going to be problematic, uh, or not possibly, he believes will be problematic going down the road, but you're in talking to you before we went uh, live here at the commercial break. You indicated you are concerned uh, that this uh, health care bill may also once again favor the big pharma. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. In a sense, first of all, I think they, they did benefit from it already. And, uh, and uh, what we need to do is introduce number one, more competition, mm-hmm. and number two, uh, allow people to choose more. Uh, the element of their health care and to bear more of the cost because otherwise we'll have an explosion of cost uh, that uh, the government cannot afford to pay. Uh, health care has already eaten up uh, most of the increase in wages that people experience. Mm-hmm. And the reason why people feel that they're not making any progress is because it's not because their compensation doesn't go up, it's because their take-home pay doesn't go up. And mm-hmm. the take-home pay doesn't go up in spite of the compensation going up because the cost of health care is going up. So we need to find a way to contain the cost. And uh, the uh, Obama reform will not do that. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that it's not that you're against big pharma necessarily. It's just that you don't want them to have some sort of unfair advantages that might, they might gain because of their influence in politics. Is that right? Absolutely. I, I'm not a, uh, I, I think that uh, the free market should apply to everybody. And uh, uh, businesses are great, but they should not have 
uh, a disproportionate political power. The moment they get disproportionate political power, we have chronic capitalism. Yeah. Of course, uh, whenever there's more regulation that's passed, uh, well, I don't know whenever, but very often it's the case when there's more regulation passed, it the burden falls unduly on the smaller companies, and the big guys uh, don't really have any problem with it. I remember Sarbanes-Oxley and uh, General, uh, General Electric CEO saying, well, we don't have a problem with that, but we think a lot of the smaller companies are going to have a lot of difficulty in coming up with the expense of, of uh, uh, con- you know, complying with the new regulations. So I think the big, big regulations, would you agree, then generally benefit or work uh, to the benefit of the large corporations? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but I have to say, I'm not in, against any type of regulation. I think that the, a fair and a free market is a market with some rules, because mm-hmm. without rules, it's a jungle. Sure. Where sort of uh, uh, only the strongest survive, not the, the, the most efficient. Mm-hmm. However, unfortunately, we have too many rules, and too many rules, as you said, designed in the interest of the large incumbent players rather than in the interest of the, the market uh, at large. Mm-hmm. In your book, you talk about American exceptionalism. There's a chapter there that talks about that, I think, early in the book. Maybe it's the first chapter or first couple of chapters. And, and you talk about uh, some of the things that made America different. And uh, one that stood out in my mind was the Protestant uh, ethic or the Protestant work ethic, I guess it's referred to sometimes. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that uh, is not only there are two aspects of the Protestant uh, religion which are important. One is, is sort of this idea uh, that uh, uh, success comes with hard work, and and the compensation that comes with hard work is, in some sense, uh, a, a recognition of uh, the fact you are blessed by God and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So that uh, the reward is not necessarily seen as a scene, but is a scene as sort of a, a just compensation, mm-hmm. which I think uh, makes it uh, easier to accept the inequality that uh, free markets bring with it without uh, complaining or trying to sort of change it. Mm-hmm. The, the second aspect is sort of uh, uh, the uh, more, if you want, Catholic version uh, tends to lead to more uh, cronism, nepotism. It's not a coincidence that the word nepotism was invented to deal with uh, the, or to explain the behavior of uh, Catholic popes that were actually appointed their children, uh, uh, natural children, because in principle they were not supposed to have children, to important positions. And why the Catholic Church could afford to do that? Because it was a monopoly. Monopoly that mm-hmm. was preserved with actually the power of the Inquisition so that uh, any dissenting idea were not allowed. And what I want to stress is there is really a very strong connection between monopoly and cronies because only with some market power you can afford to appoint incompetent people to important position. Mm-hmm. In a competitive market, if you appoint an incompetent in an important position, you lose uh, so much money uh, that you can't sort of uh, do it. Mm-hmm. In, in, uh, in the United States, uh, the Protestant churches cannot afford to appoint uh, uh, corrupt priests or corrupt treasurers in their parishes because uh, uh, you face competition. And with a bad priest in your parish, your parish loses money and loses sort of uh, people who attend uh, and disappears. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. You, there is no room for nepotism in the uh, Protestant tradition. There is plenty of room for nepotism in 
the Catholic tradition, but this is not because uh, Protestantism by itself is better than Catholicism, it's simply because competition is better than monopoly. Mm-hmm. Well, although you have more competition in the Protestant faith, that's for sure. There's a lot of different churches that one can go to. Uh, if you're a Catholic, you're a Catholic, I guess, and that's uh, uh, certainly you. Well, so the Protestant ethic, are we losing it in America, and is that part of the reason that we're moving towards this nepotism? I think that uh, definitely we're losing that ethics, and definitely we are experiencing businesses that have more and more market power, and uh, uh, also thanks to their connection with the government. And uh, that favors uh, nepotism, and that favors a degeneration of our system, our chronic capitalist system. Well, there's so much more to talk to you about, and my engineer is telling me we only have a couple more minutes. You had a really uh, interesting uh, uh, discussion in your book or, or account in the book about the University of Chicago uh, School Booth School of Business where you uh, were allowing a bartering system to go on and some of the issues there, and also New York City, uh, United Nations diplomats parking uh, tickets, and, and there were groups of people, some countries the diplomats paid their parking tickets, others they didn't. Uh, you mentioned that uh, I think the Canadians and the Swedes were very good, but the Italians were somewhere in the middle, but the Kuwaitis had the biggest number of unpaid parking tickets. What, what was your point there? Well, my point is, is that for a market to work well, we need to have some social norms. And mm-hmm. uh, the United States, I think, traditionally had quite good social norms. I think we are, to some extent, losing those social norms. Uh, which make market work less well, and I think is incumbent upon us, especially us sort of business school professors, to teach those norms in class, not have like separate ethic class that don't sort of uh, uh, teach much and are not well mm-hmm. attended. But in our sort of teaching, uh, mm-hmm. remember rem- remind students that there are sort of uh, norms in the way you behave in business and mm-hmm. shine upon people who violate those norms. Right. Integrate the the morality into the general discussion, not just a a special course, but have it as part of an ongoing discussion or or, uh, value system that's built into the into the uh, lectures, I guess, into the discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's so much more to talk to you about. We we've only got a minute left. Um, uh, Besides, of course, your students are are getting the benefit of your experience and and your uh, um, and your insights. Uh, how can our listeners? Is there do you have is there a blog or something? Do you write th- something from time to time that the general public can read? Uh, I am planning to make a blog. A blog. I don't have it yet. You can still see on my web page at the University of Chicago. I post what I write, and uh, on my Facebook page, I post what I write. So you can access that on a regular basis now. Wonderful, and of course, people can and should. I would almost say must read A Capitalism for the People, Recapturing the Lost Genius of American Prosperity. It's an excellent read. It's a very easy read. It's, it's really very, very fun to read. Um, really want to thank you very much, Professor, for coming on our show and uh, for sharing your insights. We should have allocated more time because there's so much more to talk to you about, but I really thank you. Maybe if you're willing, we'd like to have you on again. I didn't even get to ask you about the Financial Times editorial you recently wrote about in favor of Glass-Steagall. Take just a minute, if you would. Well, I guess we can't. My engineer is saying we can't. Well, I want to ask you about this some other time. Folks, he did write an article uh, in the Financial Times in favor of Glass-Steagall, and I read the article and certainly am in agreement with it, and I'll comment on it at the end of the show today. Thank you very much, Professor Zangales, for being with us. All the best to you, and hope to talk to you again sometime soon.
Thanks. My pleasure. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with James Turk after uh, the break. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused, Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Why invest in Clifton Star Resources? Because they begin the year with excellent drilling results and high goal recovery tests on the Duparquet project. A new experience management team with proven exploration and development achievements is in place. The properties have historically produced over 1.5 million ounces of gold. They are located along the prolific Porcupine Dester Break in mining-friendly Quebec, near Rouen, Noranda. A new resource estimation will be released in May. Clifton Star is only 35 million shares outstanding and is well-funded.